Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It is a true pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, man. Yeah, I was excited you reached out and I've uh, been looking forward to doing this. I was even, as you said, I even showed up early. <laughs> I've you, been pretty sh- you showed up early. That <laughs> is one of the first people to show up early. I, I love it. I love the commitment. And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great trend that I hope continues in future interviews just to get there, get in the green room a little early, you know, rehearse a few things. I think it's great. So I have to ask, Justin, right off the bat, I think you're one of the first guests I've had that has spent meaningful time in the great city of New Orleans, where I believe you spent your undergrad years. I think there's a lot of differences between Chicago and New Orleans, but it's a city that I absolutely love. So I just love to hear what was that experience like going through college in the Big Easy? Yeah, it, it was amazing. You know, New Orleans is sort of, I would say, one of the few unique cities in the United States. So when I remember when I went down there to look at school to pick out uh, my colleges, you know, we walked around. Guard District is amazing, all that kind of stuff. But sort of the funny story is my dad and I wandered down to Bourbon Street to check it out. And I remember him turning to me and saying, whatever you do, don't tell your mom about this. <laughs> uh, it, it's a great place. No, it was a wonderful place to go to school. As you know, I, I was able to, uh, to play college golf there and the temperature and climate and all that was amazing. And uh, yeah, it was a great place, great food. I, I really enjoyed my time there. I'm a, I'm a kid from the Midwest, so it was a good culture shock to live in the South for a while. I've always said to people, uh, my sister went to school there as well, and I've told people, it's a city that when you're in it, you feel like you're not in the U.S. You really do feel like you're transported to some, I don't even know how to describe it, a Euro- it feels more European than it does feel uh, you know, American, but it's incredible. It's such a unique culture. It's such a unique place, and I would love to touch on your golf career. I think, again, one of the only few professional athletes I've had on the show how did that sort of career, how did that golf career transition you into your professional career? How long did you play professionally? How often do you still play today? What's your golf game like? I need to hear all of it. So I was, as, as I mentioned, I played college golf at Tulane. And it's somewhere during sort of the middle of school or so, I thought, you know, maybe I had a legitimate chance at, at playing professionally. So I, you know, sort of mentally prepared for that. Um, I actually ended up redshirting in the middle of my college years so that I could have a little extra time. I ended up going to, to, to Tulane for five years. So my last year of school, I ended up with just a couple of classes. So I was able to, to practice and prepare. So it was something that, that kind of progressed during school. And I, you know, I obviously wanted to give it a shot. So I did that right after school. I didn't end up playing for that long. I did go through PGA Tour qualifying school, did not get my PGA Tour card at the time, but played a number of smaller tours for a couple of years. And I mean, phenomenal experience. I'm glad I did it. It was, it's definitely a grind. It's not very sexy at that level when you're, you know, just kind of humping it from city to city and, 
you know, trying to make a, a few bucks to, to get on to the next, uh, next event. But it was uh, still a wonderful experience. I'm glad I did it. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever quit anything when I stopped playing. So I retired at 25, which is a, a funny, funny concept to retire from something at 25, but, you know, still enjoyed the experience. And then, you know, after that, I ended up doing a bunch of different things, but I kind of knew when I ended up my golf that I didn't want to be in the, in the golf business, sort of in the pro shop and, and, and that kind of golf experience. It wasn't something that I was interested in doing. So, so I ended up actually, uh, I was a finance and accounting uh, undergrad major. I ended up actually moving into trading after that and was a global macro trader for a number of years in New York and then in Chicago uh, before I ended up progressing on to business school. And that actually, you know, I talked before, that actually led into my short stint as an entrepreneur as well in that same same particular space. But yeah, so it was pretty interesting from golf all the way, at least getting me up to, uh, to Chicago Booth. And then once I um, kind of progressed into school, you know, I knew that I was going to shut the business down. I was looking to, you know, get some more technical skills on the really on the finance side. And then it was after that that I made the progression into strategy and then eventually uh, venture capital. I think one area of your career that's that's really fascinating, you know, I think the trading part. I'm curious if you found that the fact that you were dealing with essentially risk, managing risk every single day as a trader, do you feel like that sort of pressure on a day-to-day basis helped prepare you for a career in venture uh, or helped at least helped you analyze risk from that standpoint? Yeah, I, I mean, it is, while it's um, a difficult profession, it strangely prepares you for a lot of different things. And for me on the venture capital side, you know, the, t- you know, being a professional athlete, the understanding risk at that level, certainly the risk of trading, having to make those literal trade-offs every day. And the, the work I did in, in strategy and the time in entrepreneurship kind of all led me into venture capital. But certainly on the trading side, I think what's what's interesting is, yes, you get comfortable taking risk on a day-to-day basis. What I, I find interesting and, and more comforting on the venture side is that you have a lot more control over what's going on. I mean, when you're trading, you know, I was in government treasuries and currencies and a lot of different stuff. I mean, the markets just tend to move and they can move on top of you or they can move with you. And in the, in the venture space, I mean, there's, you know, you know tailwinds and headwinds. But, you know, the the management of the company does have the ability to make decisions. You know, we're going to sell this market or we're not going to sell to this market. And so while it is certainly risk, it's a little slower to progress. And it does feel like you have a bit more control over what's going on, uh, which is which is great. Did you get introduced to venture capital during your time at Booth? Was that sort of your first real you know, experience with taking classes and, and getting to understand the industry? Or when did you sort of have the light bulb moment where you realized, you know, I really actually think venture capital is the career path that I want to pursue? Yeah, you know, so I'd say there was a couple of moments. So so as I was going into Booth, I was an entrepreneur. So I was kind of sort of, you know, familiar with what was going on, although I didn't have to um, go through, you know, a bunch of periods of raising capital. But when I got into school, um, also, I did some traditional internships. I actually worked for a for another startup and kind of got to get some experience on, on that side. And so I got to get some exposure, but at school, certainly I learned about venture capital and what was possible there. The, the funny thing about that is I had the realization that it was nearly impossible to break into. So I really didn't, 
I really didn't pursue it while I was at school. I mean, it's like it, it sounded fascinating and it really kind of fit with my, we'll call it perpetual intellectual curiosity. But just looking around and thinking, I mean, how in the world do you break into this? Just at that time, I just, you know, so, so I, you know, coming out of school, I ended up moving into strategy uh, after that. And it was my time at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange when a uh, position opened up in corporate venture capital. And I thought, here's the opportunity. Here's legitimate, you know, this isn't like me going out to the entire world and trying to find somebody to, um, you know, let me in. This was, I had experience and I was going to be immediately impactful in this. And so, um, you know, I just hustled literally as hard as I could to get that job and that position and, you know, was, you know, I knew it was coming up. So I was, you know, volunteering to help the group and, you know, just doing whatever I could. And so that was more the light bulb moment. And it was when I started there that I, you know, just fell in love. I mean, we were investing in a wide range of technologies and you and I have talked separately about some of the interesting things that are going on in the deep tech space. But uh, I mean, everything from quantum computing, you know, all the way over to cybersecurity and, and everything in, in between. So our motto was really tech before it became fintech. So a lot of data related technologies, a lot of software. And for me, that was like, this is the thing I'm going to do forever. And so that was definitely the light bulb moment and um, will sort of be forever grateful to CME for that opportunity to get, to get started that way. Would you say it's gotten easier for people from business school to break into VC over the past, you know, eight years? And, or would you still say people are probably best going out and getting strategy experience, startup experience before trying to break in? I'm just curious about your perspective now, you know, for people coming from B school, if they want to break into VC. Yeah, I'd say um, maybe a little bit just because there is more capital and there are more firms um and they're maybe a little more you know regionally each region is growing a bit but it's still pretty darn tough and and people come with a lot of different experiences that come into it. i mean you know you could have been an entrepreneur that was successful and now you're breaking into it uh you know you could have been a banker in a particular area and you get your mba and you do an internship um you know you could have worked in strategy you know what, whatever it may be um so i don't know if it's gotten any easier um, but it's maybe a little bit more available. I still think it's, it's hard to, to break in. And I think anything you can do during those business school years, you know, I know like Booth has the PEVC lab and stuff like that. And, um, that's a great way because often that first venture job, you need just a tiny bit of experience, just so you know, like you've seen enough of the process to understand what's going on for someone to be comfortable to, uh, to have you. You know, added to the team and, and join the group. So whatever whatever a person can do to just get a little bit of experience is the best uh, starting point. And if you can't do that, then you're you're talking about more of like, hey, can I do some angel investing? You know, can I put myself out there in terms of thought pieces and that kind of stuff as well, just to show people that you know you're interested in a particular area and that you you know have some some opinions. So. So I'd love to talk about your transition to Alumni Ventures, um, which took place at the beginning of 2021. I uh, would love to hear what attracted you to the opportunity and uh, a little bit more about, you know, the, the the team you're building out and where exactly you fall in sort of the hierarchy of uh, the big corporate sort of overhang that is Alumni Ventures. Yeah, sure, sure. Not not too big in corporate, but we've got a, a wonderful support staff. So um, I would say um, for me, the the initial attraction certainly was my connection and affinity to the University of Chicago network. So 
I'm a graduate. My wife is a graduate of Chicago Booth. My brother-in-law is also a graduate of Chicago Booth. So that um, that extra sort of emotional kicker of being able to work around that community, because for the for the listeners, our mandate is to not only raise capital from University of Chicago alumni, but then go put that capital back into University of Chicago alumni businesses. So it, it really, you know, certainly started with the excitement and curiosity around having that connection. And then knowing that it was something that, you know, I could build, you know, over hopefully the next 20 years or so, something I could really put my stamp on, because um, that's that could be hard to find. So it definitely started there. And then I started kind of peeling back the layers to understand alumni ventures and understand the model. And I got even more excited about it. I mean, the the fact that we are basically providing portfolios and funds for individual accredited investors that can't really get exposure to venture in a, in the way that we're doing it, I thought was amazing and, you know, happy to be able to do that. Because I think in, you know, going back, you know, for me before being in VC, I just, my wife and I talking about like, well, how do we get exposure to venture? And there's some ways, but, you know, often you end up in, you know, one or two seed deals and that's really not diversified. And it's, you know, you take on a lot of risk. You wonder, how did I get into that deal? Um, you know, versus what we're putting together in terms of having investors get exposure to, you know, 20 to 30 companies in each fund diversified across stage, sector and geography. Um, and then, you know, for me on the, the personal level, you know, I'd been a generalist technology investor in the past. I mean, I've done deals across a range of stages, kind of C to Series D, um, done com- uh, deals across the, the globe. Um, and so alumni ventures, our, our model and our, uh, our funds are, as I said, diversified across all of that. So for me, it was a nice fit too, in terms of, in terms of my experience. Um, and then also just to maybe like connect the dots between alumni ventures and Lake North, Lakeshore ventures is alumni ventures is the parent company. And that parent company consists of. 18 other alumni funds. So I run the Lakeshore Ventures Fund, which is targeted at the University of Chicago community. We also have a Harvard fund, a Stanford fund, MIT fund, um, and run through all the different, the Ivy Leagues as well. So um, so that's kind of the, the parent to fund structure. And what that allows for me is that I've got, you know, basically 50 other investment professionals at these other funds that I can, you know, bounce ideas off, co-invest. And then at the parent company level, we've got about 100 support staff helping us in marketing, comms, legal, uh, fundraising, all that good stuff. So it makes life much easier for me and allows me to focus more on the day-to-day, you know, venture work of sourcing deals, you know, executing on deals and, and managing the portfolio. And I'd love to dive in first, I guess, to the uh, the fundraising aspect and the sort of value add, the pitch towards these accredited investors. Um, is part of this pitch, you know, the model of alumni ventures being co-investors, is there a sense there? Is there a pitch there about the type of deals that you can get into because that is the model? I'd love to kind of hear how you sort of have those conversations with, uh, with your LPs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I describe as whether it's to, you know, LPs or potential LPs or to uh, other investors or entrepreneurs as prolific co-investors. And so our model dictates that, you know, we are focused on building diversified portfolios. And what that means is that, you know, to be frank, you give up a little bit of time and a bit of control as opposed to taking board seats for every single deal. So we would end up with smaller portfolios, you know, more individual control if we were trying to take a board seat of every company. 
So uh, when we go when we go in and do deals, we weigh our diligence weighs heavy on who the lead investor is, and so you know we want to uh, you know co-invest with established VCs. And yes, I mean I could run through all the names that between Alumni Ventures and Lakeshore Ventures, but it, it's all top names that you know of established VCs. Um, and maybe just like to give you a sort of a, a tangible example, you know we did a deal um, uh, recently in the biotech and life sciences space. And the two lead investors, uh, both uh, 20-year track records for these venture firms that led it. You also had Sanofi Ventures. You also had T1D1, which was the largest diabetes fund. Uh, and then also the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago has a, a deep tech fund focused on um, a, a range of things that are coming from sort of the Series A and beyond that we end up co-investing with. So the, the model relies heavy on that lead investor and their quality. Uh, and then we do all of our normal diligence behind behind all of that. But but yes, in terms of in talking with investors, um, you know, our pitch is is certainly about what we're doing on the diversification side. And then it's also about how we get into deals um, because we can flex up or down on check sizes uh, and that's non-threatening to the to lead investors. And then entrepreneurs just really like our network. I mean, you've got see, we've got seven thousand individual investors. 750 portfolio companies and something like half a million community members. And they're all from, uh, as you can imagine, strong schools and people that attend have done, pretty much have done well in their career. So the entrepreneurs really like uh, that part of it. And then the other, the other value prop for the investors is, I think it's roughly a third of the investors in our funds uh, will co-invest with us. So we'll often negotiate a bit of extra allocation in our deals and we'll kick that out to our individual investors and we call it syndications, but get the, they get the opportunity to also invest in individual deals if they want. The entrepreneur only gets one check, so it's fine because you know, the capital can go up, but um, you know, some of our individual investors have areas that they know well or they wanna participate in uh, and that gives them that opportunity uh, to do that. And speaking of the entrepreneurs, you know, you mentioned the Duke Fund, the MIT funds. You run the U Chicago Fund. Is there a mandate to invest, you know, only in U Chicago alums, or do you have a broader, you know, there, there's the idea of a certain amount of checks should go to U Chicago um, affiliated startups? How does that work in terms of the sort of outbound sourcing? Yeah, and I try to make it a majority, uh, and that's kind of where we are. There's no hard and fast rules or hard and fast numbers, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to make money for our limited partners. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. Um, but the best way to think about it really is kind of, you know, how do you boil the ocean? I mean, we are looking at a lot of different stages, a lot of different sectors. And, you know, the way that we can get into deals, you know, besides the fact that we've got a good reputation and, you know, done a lot of investments is by using that community network. And so, so that is, it's really more of where do you start in terms of getting into the deals and then I would love it if all of them had University of Chicago alumni connections. But that can be a you could be a founder, could be a lead investor, could be advisor. Um, so I, I do my best to find as many deals through the network as possible. But if there's things that are really good um, and you know we have the opportunity to be in the deal, then we're willing to do those as well. I guess zooming out a little bit, I mean, I think there's been a lot of shifts in the venture capital landscape in the past couple of years. And you know the the success of alumni ventures i think speaks to this this broader desire from investors to get access to venture capital are there any any other kind of macro changes that you've seen in venture capital since you started out 
that that you are you think are noteworthy? Any new models that are maybe similar to Alumni Ventures or different, or anything that you've noticed in the past couple of years that really you think reflect the nature of the market we're in? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these things ebb and flow quite a bit. I think um, you had a trend of companies, you know, staying private for a long time, and you end up with later stage investors coming in, you know, sort of the Fidelis of the world, and and doing later rounds. Um, and that is feels like it's a bit of transition, and with the SPAC, you know, market opening up, and we'll we'll see where that goes. But but there has been. Uh, you know, demand and need and curiosity for for exits. So meaning there's more, it seems like there's more going on in the secondary space and that can provide opportunity, whether you're an investor uh, or an individual to potentially get access to some of these companies that were harder to get access to because of, you know, the long run on the private side. So I don't know if we're at a tipping point or, or, or not, um, but I think between some of the up, some of the uptick in activity around secondaries and you know, just entrepreneurs, you know, wanting um, you know liquidity, and when what's going on on the SPAC side, uh, you know, is good. I mean, that's good for entrepreneurs to have more avenues for exits and liquidity, and uh, you know, it's good for investors as well. So um, that's probably the the thing that would be top of mind for me. I also, I mean, I'm curious your thoughts as to this, but I see on VC Twitter all the time the debates that that are waged. Uh, you know, the Tiger Globals of the world who are just quick, fast, easy checks and access to capital for founders, versus some of the more value add, some of the more must take board seats, must sort of in, you know very much be involved with the stewarding of the company. Do you think there has become this sort of evolution or diversification of founder needs and wants? So, you know, some may want that more sort of handholding of a VC or the more, you know, intensive VC experience. Others may just want sort of capital to kind of keep growing. Do you think VCs or entrepreneurs have sort of become smarter over the years, have become more narrow in exactly what their their wants and needs are as time has gone on? Yeah, and I and I smile a bit on this because I think most entrepreneurs if they could tell you while, you know, looking, looking away would say, you know, if they can, if they can have capital come in in a frictionless manner, they wouldn't necessarily want to add people to their board. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, amazing investors out there that do great work at the board level and provide expertise to companies and, and they might not make it otherwise. Um, but, but there is a fine line there. I would say, Going back a bit on my own experience, less so than um, sort of the board versus not and and entrepreneurs on the on the capital side, um, is maybe the corporate venture versus traditional venture capital, where you've seen a pretty good uptick on the corporate venture side. And I think entrepreneurs were less inclined to take corporate venture money before. And now that corporate venture units have become more sophisticated, they're more inclined to take that because it is ready-made customers, it's subject matter experts. And I think that more so that has been a growth area than necessarily entrepreneurs saying, I want to have a mix of, you know, more less involved, if that's if that's how you want to phrase it, you know, frictionless capital versus, you know, on the on the board side of it. So I think that's more where you've seen entrepreneurs kind of become a little more savvy and a little more open um, because of what the, a corporate venture unit can can bring. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, I'd love to dig in a bit further into the due diligence process, both for you personally and for alumni ventures at large. So, you know, I think for you, I'd love to hear kind of when you're analyzing a company or new opportunity, what are some of the most important elements to you 
or green flags? How do you sort of, you know, rank order what's most important to you? Yeah. So I also gig a little bit in this question because I feel like if you ask 50 venture capitalists, it would all end up different answers, but the same thing effectively. So I, <laughs> well, it makes I, for a great podcast yeah. question. You get tons of different answers, but it's I, always very, uh, very simple for the listener to understand. I love it. No, I'll give you, I'll give you my thoughts, but, but so, so I would say, so we're just being humble about the whole thing. I think my questions are probably fairly similar to what other venture capitalists would, would ask. Um, and so our model relies, as I mentioned before, relies kind of on the lead investor and their experience and their exposure to the space. And so we do a fair amount of diligence on the lead investor and, you know, because they're going to go on the board and, you know, you kind of want to understand, are they going to add value or destroy value, if you will, in the company? So a lot of our time is spent there. And, and I would say for for other other people that are either getting into venture or just like, you know, having a, a mental model. What the University of Chicago puts out or the, the business school puts out that outside impacts framework, I think is great. I mean, it hits all the major stuff in terms of, you know, asking about the strategy and the team and, you know, valuations and, and all, you know, market size and all that kind of stuff. So I still use that. I really like that, that model. Um, and so I think that's a good one, you know, for folks to use and look at as I think about just sort of the generic, you know, questions that they're going to ask. Because then it just you, once you get in the data room, you kind of go deeper and deeper, and it's it, it kind of depends. Now, um, a long-winded answer, but the the one of the big things that I learned earlier was to really understand a company's pricing model. So for me, that's important. There there was a a company that I earlier days that was in a particular space where transactions were important, and they ended up making a decision to go more of a subscription model, and I just oh man, it almost made you cry because of they kind of missed on the opportunity of, you know, they did a ton of transactions, big dollar amounts, and it really ended up being, you know, subs subscription model did not maximize uh, how much money they could make. So I, I really like to understand entrepreneurs thinking process around the pricing model. And I've seen enough companies now um, that I, I really like hearing about it and their logic to understand how they're, how they're going to do it. And it is kind of funny as they start to cross over in different uh, different industries. But yeah, so that that's for me one is understanding that, and then otherwise people will fall asleep if we go deep on on particular categories. But yeah, yeah. So that's that, that's my my sort of long answer to your short question. Once you've sort of vetted the company, you've vetted the lead investor. You know, if I'm a potential Lakeshore Ventures, you know, LP, and I'm I'm listening to this podcast, I'm curious you know, what is the vetting process within alumni ventures? What's the IC process like? Would love to hear about sort of the inner workings to get, you know, an investment to yeah. an actual check. Yeah, certainly. So, um, and I think, uh, you know, each venture firm has its sort of own nuances of how they do it. And I think the more common structure for smaller firms is, you know, you get a couple of general partners in the room and it's, you know, kind of thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, you know, our process is, uh, is fairly formulaic. And we, we describe it as we like to use the wisdom of the small crowd. So let's start with the assumption that diligence has been completed. We've put together our memo and our, our diligence memo, and then we're rounding up our, our investment committee. So then the process from there goes, you know, me as the managing partner of Lakeshore and then my, the members of my team, we will score the deal. We have something that I, I, I harken back to my days, my negotiation class at, at Booth, which is turning the... Uh, you know, qualitative into, into quantitative. So we have particular categories that we look at, 
what's the lead investor competition, et cetera. And we will score those. So I will go through that process. My team will go through the same process. We'll score the deal. Then another alumni funds will also do the same thing. They will also score the deal with their team. Uh, and then we will get together our investment committee. The entrepreneur will go to our investment committee, you know, give their pitch. You know, there's obviously the Q and A portion of it and the entrepreneur leaves. Uh, and then the investment committee will be able to do the same thing. They will independently go off and score the deal as well. Then we look at the scores that have all come back together and make a decision on whether we're going to invest. We have certain you know, thresholds that uh, we need to get above in order to make an investment. And there's some other nuances in there in between where we have checks if we need to, uh, you know, go ask some questions or go back to the entrepreneur and ask questions. But yeah, our process is really about, um, you know, that wisdom of that small crowd, everybody going in and scoring um, from a, you know, independent position so that we get a sense of what everybody's thinking. And it sounds like Lakeshore has already made investments this year, correct? And, and you've been making investments since the beginning of 2021? Correct. Yeah. So we uh, we started not at the very beginning of 21, 21, but yes, we have made investments this year. So we are up to seven now. Um, not all of those are up on the website, so I can talk about a few of them. So they're not all public. But um, in the in the theme of diversification, as I've mentioned many times, um, you know, we have uh, companies in healthcare, uh, as I mentioned, you know, biotech. Uh, we did an investment in a company that's in the, uh, space technology. Uh, we just did an investment in a company that's in the real estate space uh, and one that is in um, call it consumer goods. They are, they're building out a 3D uh, holographic display. And, and the hope is that with that wide viewing angle, that maybe someday you will be able to, to do away with goggles and pretty interesting stuff on the, on the gaming side uh, as well. So, yeah, so we are building that out and uh, we've got quite a few more, more companies to go. How do you all ensure... 750 portfolio companies, 20 to 30 checks a year, you know, 18 micro funds. How do you all at Alumni Ventures ensure no conflicts of investments? I mean, how do you guys make sure that nothing overlaps with each other? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways. So we first we make sure there's only so many alumni funds that can invest in one deal. So like, you're, so not all 18 are going to go into one. It's a couple of funds that go into one, and then um, you know investors can make decisions on whether they want to invest in a particular area category. We have like a deep tech fund and a blockchain fund and a seed stage fund. And then obviously we have the alumni fund. So the investor can choose uh, if they want to be in a particular category uh, as opposed to, you know, the same, you know, being in different alumni funds. So yeah, it's, uh, there are a lot of companies, but because we don't all invest in the same things and investors get a chance to choose, uh, it ends up working out on the back end. We also have, refer to the Office of Investments, and they look over all the deals, all the allocations uh, before things get, that's like the final sign off on completion. So yeah, there's a, a watchful eye to make sure that uh, we aren't running into each other. And your process in the last year, you've been writing investments, you know, and, and, and bringing new people into Lakeshore Ventures, but I would also imagine you've been fundraising as well, um, sort of actively fundraising. So just curious what it's been like fundraising in 2021. I feel like it's, it's probably been a unique year to do so. Yeah, it's a bit crazy. Um, I will say, I mean, I want to first give a shout out to the senior partners that I work with, because one of the big things because of the support staff we have is that uh, you know, we have individuals uh, at Alumni Ventures that that's what they do is fundraising. 
So they focused on that. And I will certainly do fundraising calls and, you know, talk to potential LPs. And, and I, I love that because it's a lot of fun, you know, just connecting with people in the University of Chicago network. Everybody's got, you know, amazing experience in different categories, which is great and helpful for us. So um, that is a shared experience uh, with our senior partners. But obviously, I'm doing it, you know, as well. And, and the fundraising is going great. I mean, you know, fundraising is fundraising. I mean, parts of it are a lot of fun, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned. And then parts of it, you know, every entrepreneur or, you know, VC will tell you, you know, it's a bit of a grind too. So, um, yeah, so it, it's going, it's going great. And, um, you know, I, I just enjoy the, you know, getting to know people in the network and having that, that common connection. And, you know, before we turn our attention a little bit more geographic specific to the Midwest and to Chicago, I'd love to hear you mention an interest in deep tech. So would just love to touch on if there's any particular areas within deep tech that really interest you and uh, where some of those passions, you know, really came from. Yeah. And so the one thing about us building the portfolio is I can't over fall in love with a particular category. Um, and the nice thing about deep tech is it's is it's pretty broad. Um, but there are certainly particular areas that, you know, I have been interested in over the years and I, I really like, and I'll drop a, a bit to local, but I, I really like what's going on in the quantum computing space for Chicago. You know, what the university is doing with their, their, their accelerator duality. Um, you know, I, I love that P33 is supporting that, you know, those folks really well. And so I love that the quantum computing effort is coalescing around Chicago and it's more than just you know, University of Chicago, because you've got, um, you know, a couple of federal labs and a couple other universities as well. So that's, that's wonderful. And that's an area that, you know, even going back to CME, when we did an investment in that space, I've always been interested in whether it's hardware, software, even security. Um, so I even just uh, a couple of days ago, I got to meet a, a fascinating company in the quantum computing space that's here, that's here locally. And they're trying to solve a really hard problem, which is you have disparate hardware, you know, the IBMs and Rigettis of the world and, you know, whoever else is there, there are different, um, different models. You have that, which, you know, end users need to connect to. And then you have all the stuff that sits in the middle with the application developers at the very other end of the spectrum who probably don't have experience, you know, programming a quantum computer. So this company is basically building out what's called the, the middle part of that so that you can hit disparate hardwares and you can still do your application development and you don't have to be an expert in either one of those spectrums. So um, that's something I think has been needed. And in my my little world of my little network of deep tech, there was like three different people that mentioned this company's name. And I was like, oh, I got to go talk to them. So I did. And I'm very excited. And, um, you know, hopefully that will be in our, our pipeline in the future. But, yeah, that's one area that I'm, I'm excited about, passionate about. And it's got a long tail, but uh, it's pretty cool. Did you ever spend any time uh, at all in your VC career just with your background in trading, looking at any you know fintech companies? Are you are you interested at all in, in crypto trading? Just curious how that maybe that time you spent in trading maybe still impacts your VC career, or did you just get out of financial services and you're like, okay, I'm going to leave that behind and focus on other things? That was enough yeah, trading for me. It was um, a little bit more of leaving it behind. Now, I mean, certainly it, what was it was kind of quirky because at CME. The intention was, and that would be the closest I'd been at that time for capital markets, technology, and fintech. And but um, it was we were really intending to be tech before it became fintech. So as things were more on the trading technology side, we were less inclined to do it, and more of kind of make internal introductions. So um, you know, I've kind of found my passions in other areas. It's typically one that's easy for me to understand. And and then there was there was one portfolio company which. 
I won't mention the name because I'm not sure how public it is what they were doing on that side, but they were going deep into, into the trading side of it or working with a hedge fund and trying to figure out some of the correlations as it, as it related to, to markets and whether they could do um, you know, certain things with their, with their artificial intelligence. So yeah, I, I do like you know, when something's more tangible on the application side as it relates to the, to the markets. You know, there's a funny thing that I, I've seen, and I'm, you know, sort of, I'm an expert in this area, but I see it when I talk to other people that are experts that have been in a long, been in an area for a long time, is often you build up a high bar of skepticism. And so you're almost less inclined to do something because you're like, here's all the ways it could go wrong and it couldn't work. And, and then entrepreneurs just go prove you wrong. So, you know, there's a bit of that for me when I look at some of the trading things where I'm like, okay, here's, here's why, you know, that's not practical or whatever. And then I just get proven wrong. So I'm a little bit careful on, on, on that side of things, but it is easy for me to understand, you know, technologies, generally speaking, that are in capital markets and for, for trading. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, and I guess, you know, a question related to Chicago, but it sounds like, you know, we've touched on a little bit of the answer, but, you know, uh, uh, an ecosystem like Chicago in 10 years from now, do you think there are certain sectors or areas of technology that we're going to be known for? It sounds like quantum computing, quantum, quantum computing is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that's the case. I mean, otherwise, we have a lot of different industries. And certainly, you know, I mean, with, you know, CME being here and a lot of proprietary trading firms, there's reason to believe that, you know, what's going on on the in the trading side of technology space, I think that's kind of already here and that will grow. But, you know, I'd love if we could, you know, carve out our niche on that quantum computing side. I mean, you've got, you know, University of Chicago, Northwestern, U of I, you've got some great potential, uh, I mean, UIC, you've got potential uh, wonderful talent pool on the engineering side. So these, you know, folks don't have to leave the region to go on to go other places. So. Um, I hope that that's the case and that, you know, in the, in the deep tech side of it, that people stay here and, and build their businesses. But I would say that's, you know, that's as good as any, you know, I, I, I'm not super deep on the, on the biotech and life sciences side, but also I think there's some, some groundswell there in terms of opportunity and capital. Um, but for me, I'm, you know, sort of more, a little bit closer to what's going on the quantum side. So I hope that's, hope that's where we carve out the niche. And, uh, I think we've got a, a really good shot. And you've been around the city of Chicago and, you know, the early stage ecosystem for, for a while now. I'm just curious, any kind of challenges that are unique to Chicago or challenges at large that you think Chicago may face um, with growing into a bona fide tech hub? Yeah. And I think, you know, um, kind of rolling out of the Chicago Venture Summit here recently, I, I think I would say probably the same things as everybody else in terms of, you know, quantity of capital and, you know, you know, the kind of talent flight that happens. So, you know, and you're seeing some bigger companies here, you know, you see in the headlines and securing office space and, and, and having those big names here will help, help us hang around, but also, you know, success breeds success. So I, I don't remember the exact number, but, you know, we ha now have a number of unicorns that were, you know, built, grown, you know, birthed, however you want to phrase it here in Chicago. And, and that will continue to attract more and more capital, uh, you know, going forward. So, you know, I think we're on the that right trajectory. And even like, you know, the stuff that Brad is doing over at P33, you know, just really focused on the tech community. And, and he's great about, I mean, he's very commercially minded. So I think he will do a good job of making sure these are areas where legitimately 
you know, we think we can, you know, be successful. So there's plenty of room to run. I mean, you know, evaluations certainly are, are better here than they are on the, on the coast. But I mean, I really think that, you know, we're on a upward trajectory. Once we get a new stadium for the Chicago bears, the sky's the limit. I mean, seriously, I think that's, that's the next major milestone we get. And then everything is just peaches from there. That's all we need. Problem solved. Um, Justin, I have one more question. Most important question of the show, favorite restaurants in Chicago. If you were to give any, a shout out. Oh, you know what? Let's go with interesting one. So, uh, going back a bunch of years ago, my wife and I did our, um, wedding reception at uh, Cortino's. So I'm going to give a shout out to Cortino's. It's been there for quite a long time, but, uh, I do, I do love the spot. I've never been to Gortino's, but it's the spot that like every single person when I ask them for favorite Italian spots, it always gets a shout out. So it's very high on my list. Um, Justin, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. We really appreciate it. This has been a blast. Can't wait to talk soon again in the future. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.